This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Alan, can we take a step back to 2001? What originally interested you about joining Amazon? Well, thanks, first of all, for, for taking the time with me here. Well, go back to 2001, and, and actually there's a step before that, which was which was in 2000. Um, I had been working at Apple Computer since 1995, and we were we were really transform, transforming the whole supply chain, a country-by-country approach to, to get to a global approach at Apple. During that period, you know, maybe around 1997, 98, we, we were really working on the first Apple online store. I think it was launched in the US in, in late 1997. And you know how quickly technology has changed, right? Those were the days when you were plugging the mobile phone in and you were going through dial-up and uh, kind of intrigued by emails dropping in one by one. But it really was the the start of e-commerce, right? So we worked in the first online store and it was really about the convenience for customers that attracted me to online. And that was at Apple. A guy I'd worked with at Apple had joined Amazon in, in about 99. And I met Wilkie, Jeff Wilkie, and I met Jeff Bezos in the year 2000. And um, I didn't take the role for for, uh, for family reasons at the time. But I really got an insight into what was really a disruptive approach uh, to improving customer experience, to improving convenience. And right from the early days, I was convinced that there was an incredible opportunity there. So by good fortune, the role came back around uh, in early 2001, and I joined Amazon uh, in April of 2001. And um, I just really thought it was fantastic, really inspiring to listen to the, the vision of of a Jeff Wilkie and a Jeff Bezos and a guy called Diego Piacentini at that time. What, what was so inspiring about the way they were articulating their vision? Well, I think many things uh, come come to mind. Right, the, they were they were really driven by a customer obsession that that was was truly different than anything I experienced. Apple, of course, are been very fortunate in life and digital equipment before that were also very driven by the customer experience. But there was a pace, there was an energy. It was a real authentic customer obsession, and how do we truly make make the, the brilliant customer experience for, for customers. You know, there was other things. There was no bureaucracy. There was no hints of bureaucracy in the company. It was very fast-paced. And it was really striving to become the world's most customer-obsessed uh, company. And it really felt authentic to be part of that. Was it, was it driven by Bezos himself? Or did it also come from below? I think it came from the team, to be honest with you. I mean, I think obviously many of these companies are, are kind of defined by their, by their chief executive. But I would tell you there was a consistency in that across the executive team. So all the, all the executives that uh, were in position at that time, we were pretty singularly focused on a number of objectives and customer experience was number one. But, but I mean, what examples do you have in those early days that would describe how obsessed they were with customers because i guess every every company these days says they're customer obsessed right i mean what examples do you have that is like really stand out like these guys are are really serious about this yeah i think i mean a couple come to mind when, when you think back to those days um so, so first of all it was in the dna of the people right we had metrics that we reviewed uh every week uh with the executive of the company on what the customer experience was how many were satisfied how many were dissatisfied we had a thing called free replacements and you go back to those days where a customer when they did experience a defect we replaced the product free that was really unique at that time as i recall so that was that's one example we built some decision logic into the software of the company in the supply chain where if we had a product that was dispatching to a customer and it was more costly to Amazon but would meet the customer experience commitment, the logic would would favor that route, right? So at a cost to Amazon, and we truly believed that the long-term loyalty that a great customer experience would drive 
was much better than, you know, like a short-term financial gain, etc. So there was a number of things in the software that were built in in favour of customers. Free replacements is an obvious example of where we, we really went the extra mile to make sure the customer experience was was fantastic. And so moving on to look at more specifically the, the fulfillment network then, and how would you describe the differences in... Amazon's philosophy to build in a, a fulfillment network versus the existing incumbents at the time. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, there was no network, right? If you go back to if you go back to uh, the early days, um, UK and Germany opened in 1998, and France followed. Uh, so when I joined in 2001, uh, and even there was only the three countries, and there was this direct link between the website of France and the distribution centre or the fulfilment centre in the country, right? So so really there wasn't a network in Europe um, at that point in time. So that's where we really started the journey. And, and, and um, there was a there was this one-to-one relationship between the fulfilment centres and the and the and the country. Our first expansion in 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 the UK was in 2004 um, when we opened up in, in Scotland actually my native Scotland I remember it very well. And we really saw by the the growth of the business that we were really going to have to scale fast. And um, the second expansion was in about 2006 when we opened our building in in Leipzig in Germany. And that's when we really started to drive uh, the standardization. But the network started to evolve over those years. And, And, you know, we did things like every single fulfillment center in Amazon had the capability to be able to dispatch product to anywhere in the world that had a postal code. So really the notion of the network and thinking about having a kind of global topology, a global set of buildings that we could dispatch our product from any of those buildings to anywhere, that vision was created very, very early in the journey. And then over the period of time uh, that we were, that I was there, you were constantly and relentlessly working on establishing and improving that network. And of course, that network provided us flexibility. And so, for example, in the UK, just to throw out one example, we had same day delivery. We had a guaranteed next day delivery. We had a super saver delivery, which was a three to five day service at the time. So depending, and that gave the customers great great choice. So depending on what the customer chose, our systems would be able to work out what was the optimum route for that product to the customer based on the service uh, that the customer had provided. So I, I guess today, they're still Amazon's still working on improving and building on that network. But it started with no network and evolved over time. And when I left Amazon, we had 22 buildings across UK, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain dispatching product all, all around the world. So the the if I order now in London, then not necessarily the the fulfillment center closest to me is going to ship my product then? That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, we, we positioned our inventory around these different uh, fulfillment centers. And when the order dropped, there was a, a series of decision making in the, in, the, in the software logic that would look at what's, first of all, to our earlier point, what's the customer request and the customer commit? And therefore, what's the optimum route for that customer and for Amazon at that time to satisfy that customer? So it may well be if the inventory could dispatch, in this example, uh, from well north of London and arrive on time in London. So, no, it didn't It didn't position all inventory in London for London customers. It looked at optimising that network. And, of course, to your, to your question, that was us starting to really build a network of fulfilment centres across the globe. Yeah. So how did you think about optimising the placement of inventory then? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the you know you look at your inventory profile and and you look at um, you know categorizing that inventory into sales velocity. You look at fast moving product, you look at uh, medium moving product, and you look at slow moving product, and you also look at the dimensional data of the product. What's heavy and bulky product? What's uh, what's small product? Right, and then you really build that inventory positioning based on where your customer demand is and customer demand 
typically follows where the population density is. Then you look at the storage solution as an example for a very slow moving large product, a trampoline, a you know, a gazebo or a you know a hot tub. That storage solution may well be different for a fast than for a slow moving large product for a fast moving small product. So you really looked at your inventory profile, you looked at where the customers were, you looked at the sales velocity of the inventory and made some decisions based on a number of factors. What what's the storage solution? Storage solution, I mean, we, we, one of the one of the things we used to talk about, I mean, and, and as I moved on in my career into into um into grocery and then onto onto wayfair and into heavier bulky items. An item's an item and it has a certain set of characteristics. So in Tesco, we were dealing with fresh product, frozen product, ambient product. We were dealing with eggs. And then, you know, you go to the example we just mentioned where you might be dealing with a gazebo. So you really have to understand the characteristics of your inventory profile, both in terms of sales velocity, but also in terms of the dimensional data. Is it fragile? Is it hazardous? Is it bulky? Is it awkward? And look at establishing what's our storage solution for that range of product and what's our th- what we would call throughput, which is the pick, pack, sort, dispatch, and deliver processes. So you really build a process path for the product type um, that any company is uh, is looking at. So what one of the things I learned over a period of time is just a product, and whether it's coming in from an FBA vendor, or, you know, a Castlegate vendor, uh, whether it's an egg, a bottle of water, a lettuce, all the way through to a gazebo, it's a product, and then you just look to optimize the process path and the technology for that product. I do want to get on to, to compare FBA and, and Castlegate because I think it's interesting, but just. How did FBA change the way you you thought about optimizing the network, given now you had first-party and third-party inventory? Yeah, I mean, I think from a supply chain perspective, I mean, the way I would answer it was, honestly, a, just another product, right? Now, then you look at the evolution, though, of the supply chain, and I remember very well the early days of uh, FBA where we didn't have the standards in place at that point in time. And I remember, you know, some suppliers would arrive unannounced and deliver, you know, large caravan full of books or musics or DVDs and it would be kind of dumped on the on the uh, the received dock, right? But of course, going back to the point I made about the process, we had to establish processes, we had to establish standards, we had to the, you know, establish what type of labeling, what type of packaging would be. So loved that that evolution because you had to innovate. You know, how do we it was a fantastic way of increasing selection on the website. So you were increasing, you know, you were connecting suppliers with customers. Great for everybody, great for the supplier, great for the customer, etc. So from a supply chain perspective, it was just another inbound lane and we had to put in place the right processes, the correct standards to manage that uh, that variation. And, and that's something that evolved over time. So whether it's FBA or Castlegate or, you know, purchased inventory, you, you, you develop a process and a standard for that inventory. So to me, it didn't matter if it was FBA or not FBA. It was an inbound lane. And did you store both FBA and, and third party in the same warehouse or in a, with the same balance or how did you look to manage them absolutely we did well again uh, back to that uh, set of sort of philosophies or principles on 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 the inventory profiling right we we captured the dimensional data we captured the sales velocity and um we had software built that understood we used the data that understood where every single item was in the fulfillment center at any given point in time. So we could well have an FBA item sitting next to a purchased item, and that would be in that location, not because it was FBA or not FBA. It was in that location because of the dimensional data of that item and the software accuracy and then the different the, the discipline around the process really drove accuracy into that inventory positioning. And, you know, we were constantly measuring to ensure that our accuracy was incredibly high on the put-away process or the stow process, you would call it, and therefore driving a much greater accuracy on the pick. So, you know, leaning away from 
this is the FBA section or this is the this is the non-FBA section, more about the position of the inventory based on the dimensional data. What was the biggest challenge in scaling FBA? I think in the early days, it was the lack of standards and processes around that. And, um, you know, we put a huge emphasis, emphasis on into a very robust sales and operations planning process so that we really knew what the total inbound volume would be and what the categories were of that inbound volume. And we really knew what the outbound volume would be. So it was another approach where we really broke it down to what's the process, what's the technology, and what are the what the people, people process tech uh, for each process path. So in the early days, there was no standards when I left, we had made great progress on the on the maturity of those of those processes and standards. So, I think it was the diversity of the product, and because it really was, you know, again, brilliant for customers because we get much wider and broader and depth of selection. So, we really like the diversity of the categories, but making sure we had the right processes to deal with that. I mean, how could how can the brick and mortar retailers? learn from Amazon and, and how they've organized their supply chain and fulfillment network to really compete today? Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think bricks and mortar can learn from Amazon. And I think Amazon can learn from bricks and mortar, to be honest with you. It's not that one is fundamentally better than the other, uh, but they are different. In Amazon and most e-commerce companies, uh, there's, there's, as an example, there's talk of forward deployed inventory, right? And, and bricks of mortar stores have been doing this for hundreds of years. It's called a store. It's called a shop, right? Uh, and it's usually these stores and shops are very close to population densities, right? So I think there's an opportunity to take the best practices from both e-commerce and from bricks and mortar to drive a better customer experience, whether it's coming from e-commerce or from bricks and bricks and mortar uh, companies. I think when I reflect on where bricks and mortar was, uh, and this is a bit of a general generalism and, and, and may not be entirely fair, but many of the companies hadn't made the investment in the technology, the investment in the data necessary to truly optimize the customer experience. So I think, um, you know, I, I, I would I would say that that was the opportunity there for the bricks and mortar to, to really, you know, think longer term, to make that investment in technology, to really optimize the supply chain through the use of brilliant processes, brilliant technology, and building great teams. But I think each of these customer experiences can learn from each other and take shopify for example who are building out their their new fulfillment network i mean let, let's say you have a you're a similar business to shopify you have a huge customer base merchants that are a transaction like how, how how would you approach building a fulfillment network today against amazon yeah i mean i i think i think a supply chain it comes down to there are several principles that you might want to be thinking about right in the end the product is moving from a manufacturer through a set of steps in the process to customers. So you really look at where's your customer demand. I personally always start with the customer and work backwards. Um, where is your supplier base? And basically, how do you simplify that connection? How do you bring accuracy to every step of the process so that you know where where that is? So. I would start with, you know, my understanding where my customer demand was, understanding where my supply base was, mapping that out, looking at where the growth opportunities are, looking at what the um, customer proposition is, right? What are the speed requirements? Are you offering a same-day service? Are you offering a timed service? Are you offer what reliability are you are you offering? And then you build your network based on that. Looking at again sales velocity and the, and and the, the product and inventory profiles that any that any company has, then you start building your network. And what is the most difficult part? Difficult part of it, like again, say Shopify, they're building out a new network. Like, would you would you say it's the you know, the automation inside the the FCs in picking and packing, or is it just you know, what's the really the most difficult? Parts of scaling the network. I would actually answer that and say, when you're scaling the network, I'm looking at all things storage, all things throughput, and all things people. And when I talk about throughput, I'm really talking about inbound, 
you know, the the processing of it within the fulfilment centre. So as you say, the pick, the pack, the sort, the dispatch. You're also looking very much at any middle mile activity that you may need and any last mile activity that you need. So you're looking at every element of the of the process, understanding the capacity of each element, understanding exactly how many items or how many customer orders you can process through that. But on the scaling question, I would argue the people element and the recruitment element. Where can you attract and retain the best talent possible for your network? So it's all things people. It's the receivers, the people that do the put away, the people do the pick, the pack, the sort, the dispatch, the final mile delivery, the customer contact, the returns process. So you really, again, break it down to those process paths. But in my experience, it wasn't the automation. It wasn't the process definition or the standardization. It was really the recruitment challenges and making sure that we always remained ahead of the curve in terms of getting people on board, getting people trained and retaining retaining the talent. So I think sometimes we, we, we skip over this this point, but I think scaling uh, the people is something that has to be a high priority for any leaders in supply chain today. And you mentioned earlier how about you know, products of product and you know, whether it's a, a gazebo or a pack of eggs. But you know, moving on to Wayfair, like, how would you compare the supply chain philosophy at Wayfair with Amazon? Yeah. I mean, of course, there are some nuances, right? However, I'd say fundamentally about moving products through from manufacturers and suppliers to customers, right? So I think the the approach was to to the approach is to really build again. I'll, I'll go back to the consistent areas of of the of the approach at Wayfair and Amazon, or or when I go back to my Apple days or or anywhere, is really to build very solid foundations of of processes and standardized processes, real operational excellence in the definition of those processes, right? The second big area is the, is the definition of the technology. So the, the process step and the technology step should be absolutely hand in hand, right? And um, you should look at every step of that process. The next step is your customer and really start that philosophy of customer experience right at mile zero, in fact, right at the, at the supplier. So as by example, the customer of put away is pick, the customer of pick is pack, the customer of pack. And really think of that, how do you orientate your processes with that customer obsession? Is it materially different though on like on large versus small items? No, so again, I think, I think the, the, I, I, I'm really thinking through of the, um, the, the approach to it. So, that bulky item, let's use the gazebo, let's use the hot tub, it has a certain set of requirements around storage, throughput, and labor. So then you optimize for that product type. So the, the philosophy and approach to these items is, is literally the same. The physical deployment of the storage solution for an egg or a gazebo is, of course, going to be different. You don't want to put a gazebo at height in your building, right? You want to you you want to also put the fast moving product closer to the sortation phase. These types of things. So, when you ask about the supply chain philosophy, the philosophy or the principles are actually very similar, but you adapt or adopt a different physical deployment based on the product type and the sales velocity. But I'd say the philosophies were very similar. And also for FBA and Castlegate, they do seem very similar services, right? They're forward deployment of inventory for furniture and also for you know, for general merchandise for Amazon. So how would you compare offering that service for large gazebos and, and, and small books? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I, I, honestly, I, I might even sound a little repetitive here, but from, from my supply chain perspective, I think of both as an end-to-end supply chain. So in the Amazon example, FBA was a mechanism to connect suppliers to customers and expand selection. Similarly, in Wayfair, the Castlegate service was a fantastic service for suppliers, and it was fantastic for customers, and it was fantastic for Wayfair. So from my supply chain perspective, it's a product range, and therefore, how do I optimize my processes and my technology for those product range? So I really don't think about 
the different commercial elements, I'm thinking about the products and optimizing the end-to-end supply chain. Well, and like, for example, let's take, take the first mile in, in, in Asia then, right? So you have some suppliers, whether it's Chinese, I don't know, general merchandise sellers or, or furniture furniture manufacturers. Like, it, it, is the individual steps of the process, the drayage onto the ocean freight, are these all very similar for both large and small items or are they separate processes then, for example, at Amazon, that would they run separate? Yeah, I mean, there's, again, from my supply chain perspective, and, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to be repetitive here at some level, it's a process step. So I was out, as an example, in Asia uh, prior to the pandemic, working with manufacturers to understand, going back to the principles we talked about earlier in the, in the discussion, understanding how do we take waste out the process. So when I talk about the simplification, you know, in simple terms, Every time you hand over a product, it's an opportunity to introduce a defect or a cost. So how do we reduce those number of the number of handovers going right back to the supplier? How do we get the supplier's demand signal to be cleaner? So how do you really start that forecasting process? Let's go, for example, right at the MRP level of a supplier and connect it. Right? How do you eliminate waste? And that goes back to one of the principles of simplification, uh, touch point reduction, defect reduction. So you really map out for the bulky product or for the book, how do you optimize and reduce the number of steps in that process for that product type? So again, the approach and the philosophy and the principles are very similar in approach. How do I optimize for my gazebo? How do I optimize for my book? But really think about it starting at the source, right? People often talk just now about last mile. First mile is equally important, right? And really go back to the source of the supply. Ian, if we just go to the source then, I mean, how did you find Amazon approached large and bulky items differently to Wayfair? Given that Wayfair is, a, I guess, a specialist in home, did, did they integrate differently with the supplier in any way? At that point in time when I was there, the what we called the bulky items, the heavy bulky items, were, were were a smaller piece of the puzzle. So we were really focused like a labor, like a laser, and optimizing the um, uh, the smalls process. It was a it was a conscious decision to go after that volume. So wouldn't wouldn't be able to give you a, a you know a completely detailed answer on the on 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 how the supplier connection was, was available. But we did put in place programs. For example, we talked about that in sales velocity. So as an example, you have to build in flexibility for things like seasonal peaks. So let's talk about a program we had called Vendor Flex. Um, and Vendor Flex was a, a program that was, you know, how do we optimize that supply chain? How do we reduce those touch points for things like large screen televisions, as an example? So we worked with some suppliers at that seasonal peak where we deployed a team of Amazon people to the source of that large screen television and slapped on a shipping label, you know, took the order in there into that uh, vendor, slapped on a shipping label and shipped it direct. So that was skipping, you know, the notion of shipping it to the Amazon fulfillment center, receiving it into the fulfillment center, dispatching it from. So we cut out, you know, four, five, six, seven different nodes in that chain. So that's an example of working with a supplier to help the supplier to help the customer. So those types of initiatives did do, but the philosophy and approach to it was the same. How do I simplify? How do I reduce touch points? Well, and then just more practically then, you know, taking the large you know, furniture items, for example, I mean, in, at, the, at the first mile, like what do you think are the potential advantages that Wayfair could take in that specific category, given they're specializing over the likes of Amazon in, in large and bulky? Well, I mean, I think the Wayfair model is all things home, right? So by definition, ended up the opposite of what I just talked about with, with, with Amazon, where we really put the focus into the into the small parts. It wasn't it was just the volume was there at that point in time. In Wayfair, with the furniture category with our beds and with our sofas and tables and, and, and chairs, etc. Then by definition, we had to put our focus into how do we optimize these process steps for bulky product. And that's what in fact we did. But again, we would look towards material handling equipment that would 
reduced lifts. I mean, safety is first and foremost in, 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 in a priority at both Amazon and at Wayfair. How do we move that the most efficient way, that heavy, bulky item, right? So we, we ended up deploying a number of initiatives that would ease the movement of that product through the supply chain, uh, right from the customer, the way we would package it, uh, the way we would consolidate the freight in Asia, the way we would book that freight and load the container, the way we would receive it into our fulfillment center, we would bring in product. How is that different, for example, like take, take like you just said, like receiving it from, from the supplier, filling the container, is that... Is that material? Would it be materially different way for than it would be for Amazon? Honestly, I'm not familiar with how Amazon does it now. But they wouldn't split up their large. They wouldn't split up their large and small. Or would they? Would they split up the large? Have a large and bulky supply chain for like filling containers and. When I was there, we had uh, we had dedicated buildings for for bulky, so we would receive that bulky product to those dedicated buildings, right? We also had some mixed buildings when I, when I was there. In Wayfair, we have the flip. Most of the buildings are bulky buildings and we're receiving to those bulky. So you've optimized a bulky receive process, a bulky storage process. But we also had mixed buildings. So we had a number of buildings positioned across the network that could dispatch you know, light bulbs and gazebos from the same building. So we would set up the receive process for small, medium, and large, and the receive process for bulky items. So that's, in fact, how we, how we develop those processes. What is the most difficult part of the first mile for, for large and bulky? Again, I would come back to it, and I wouldn't put it in terms of difficult. I would say it was a process step that we had to optimize. So we looked at how, what's the best way of moving that product from A to B? What's the best way of uh, dispatching it? And I, I'll come back to, again, uh, how do you optimize that supply chain, right? So we worked with manufacturers. We worked with suppliers. We went right back to the, the manufacturer process and, and, and building on what I said earlier. When you take the mentality or the approach that every step of the process, the next step is your customer, you start to understand the customer pain points from the source. Right? So we would go into the manufacturing sites and look at what's your next pain point? Well, the next pain point is loading the truck in the yard. We would literally go and load that truck together with the people, going back to the analogy that the best person to tell you how to improve picking is the person that picks all day long. The best person to tell you how to load a truck from a manufacturing source is the person that does it. So we would deploy our leaders, our engineers into the manufacturing site, into the suppliers and look at understanding the customer pain points at every point in that supply chain. And how do we make it better? How do we simplify it? How do we take the pain out? How do we reduce the touch points? So that's how we did it. What were some of the pain points for those like furniture suppliers that you found? Actually, a lot of the pain points would be lifting. Uh, a lot of the, the pain points were in the packaging process that we improved, a lot of the, the damage process. So we learned through that approach where the damages would be induced, where we had difficulty. So when I talk about things like throughput, what's the productivity associated with this, right? How do we load in a safe manner faster? but more effectively, or maybe not even faster, but more efficiently, I should say. How do we optimize that? You look at having the right metrics. For example, let me give you an example of this notion of each step of the process. Your customer is the next step of the process. When you started, people might have looked at optimizing a truck fill as a metric and really densifying that product into the truck right, and congratulating themselves on the silo of that metric, right, okay, you cannot get another square centimetre or square inch into that truck. However, you need to look at the end-to-end -end metrics in a balanced way. How efficient is it to unload that truck? How much damage has been occurred in transit in that truck as a result of the packing. So this is when you start to really look at the end-to-end -end process and really having the right metrics in place to drive the right behavior. And the right behavior is always, first of all, um, as a priority, safety, and then uh, your, your customer experience metrics and your employee experience metrics. So having those end-to-end -end metrics, those end-to-end -end processes, 
and really understanding your customer pain points is the process and is the approach that you take. Well, which part of the process do you typically get the most damage for large and bulky items? So in, in this example, and it's, and it's uh, something that we made incredible progress with in, uh, in, um, in, in Wayfair, right? We had a, a full team that was passionate about making sure that we reduced uh, damages. So damages can happen anywhere, right? As I, as I mentioned any, uh, earlier, the more touch points, the more opportunity for damage and the more opportunity for cost. So we literally put process and audits in place to understand where those touch points were and where those damages were incurred. So it's typically involved in the movement of product in and out of containers, in and out of trucks at the fulfillment centres or, or, or at the middle mile stations or at the last mile stations. So therefore, you look at how do you, how do you eliminate that step altogether? Or if you can't eliminate the step, how do you optimise the step in, the, in this example, we put in different types of storage uh, equipment that would hold the material in a better way in, on, the, on the location. Different types of uh, material handling devices that would help move that product in a much more efficient and safer manner. So each step of the process can induce a defect, and it's about understanding that. And this is one of the foundations that I've talked about, is that culture of defect reduction a defect's actually a good thing. You encourage your team to identify that defect and remove it, and you praise that behavior and reward that behavior because taking the, the defect out of the system as early as possible is a win for everybody with the ultimate failure the, de the defect gets to the customer. But those are examples of we improved the storage, we improved the material handling, we improved the packaging, we improved the metrics around how to load a truck and how to unload a truck. Just walking through the again the processes and the philosophy seem very similar between Amazon and Wayfair, and they both focus on defects. What advantages would you say that Wayfair specifically has over Amazon in shifting large and bulky to reduce the touch points and 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 the defects in the first and, and first mile and fulfillment? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't want to draw a direct comparison to be honest with you and, and say one was better than the other. I'd say. I'd say the, the, the process focus at Wayfair was the right one, which was to be the best in the world at home home delivery uh, for all things home. And and, uh, and therefore, that obsession around the customer experience led to an optimization of the Wayfair processes, which you know resulted in improvements in the way heavy, bulky product was received, stored, and, and delivered. So, you know, I wouldn't be in a position to say, you know, how Amazon does it today. Amazon are very, very good at what they do. But what I would emphasize is the nature of, of the inventory profile that Wayfair did demanded optimizing each of these steps and therefore became very, very good at it. Can we just walk through the, the rough process then? So let's say I'm a supplier, you're working at, you know, your, your Wayfair. And what's the first process? I understand it comes to like part of the ISC, right? In international supply chain. It goes to what, a consolidation center in Asia and then sorted. Do you then pack it all on? I mean, the, the first step of the process actually starts with the manufacturer and the manufacturer manufactures the product. And, um, you know, we want to get very, very, or we did want to get uh, very, very close to the, the, the start of the supply chain, right? And in this example, uh, We'll give an, an Asian one. So the product's manufactured. The product moves into a consolidation um, center. One of the opportunities is to consolidate that freight from multiple suppliers in Asia to optimize that next step of the process, load the container. The container goes onto the vessel, then position those uh, vessels into, for example, um, San Francisco for the West Coast or into Savannah for, for the Southeast or into into New York um, for, for the Northeast. So we had multiple points in that process that would bring that optimization. But it started with the manufacturer, started uh, by the, the consolidation of the freight in Asia in this example. Well, and, and how integrated can you really get with like the production? Again, let's say from a supplier, like do you know the units I'm going to turn off my, my manufacturing line? Are you, that are you that integrated with my production cycles at this point? Every good company that I've worked for uh, puts a huge amount of emphasis into building a fantastic sales and operations planning process where we really look at the demand 
forecasting, uh, what products are hot, what new categories are coming, what products, how do we add selection. We also, therefore, equally look at what's the supply planning. It's about driving accuracy into that whole you know, process, looking at understanding availability, and that comes down to you know, connecting suppliers with brilliant data and brilliant visibility into when the products are arriving. So you really want to start with that sales and operations planning process. It runs weekly. It's always looking at, you know, the current week's performance. It's looking at what does that mean to the two-week forecast? What does that mean to the monthly forecast, the quarterly forecast, the annual forecast? So this is an iterative live process that's constantly looking at demand and constantly looking at supply. And then you want to really understand and drive visibility and data through your technology into exactly the status of suppliers, exactly the status of your inbound lanes, exactly the status of your inventory profile, and exactly the status of your demand. So the the dream is to have you know this real-time dashboard that connects every supplier with every customer and you're you're watching it live from your laptop from wherever you are and watching the the daily and hourly iteration of your of your demand and your supply. It's interesting though because both Amazon and Wafer, I mean, they're taking very similar approaches, right? Where they're actually moving upstream into the supply chain to own more of the inventory, understand more of the the data at each point. You know, which how do you compare that? You know, given the fact that also it seems like Amazon takes more inventory risk because they own first party and they, you know, versus where Wayfair, which kind of takes no inventory risk, right? But they still, they still, take, you know, own part of the supply chain. Well, I mean, I, I, the, the way I would think about it is, you know, the, the, the ownership model is a commercial decision on how you want to approach these things. What's important for me from a supply chain perspective is the visibility on the data, right? And how a company sets up commercially is, is, is for others to comment on in, in, a, in a different interview, right? But from a supply chain perspective, what I needed was data and visibility and accuracy of that data. So through, for example, the connection to suppliers, we're working, everybody's working very, very hard to drive accuracy right at the start of that process. And accuracy is great for the suppliers, it's great for the customers, and it's great for Wayfair in this example. Um, so the way I would look at and answer that question is, is about bringing the tools and the processes necessary right, to really drive that, that accuracy into the process where everybody benefits because, you know, if, in simple terms, right, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And, and to be able to measure it, you have to have the data, right? So that, that's the way that supply chain set up. And, it, and it's an extremely efficient and effective way of doing it. Well, and so we're going for again. You get the item for the from the supplier. You it's consolidated in Asia, stuck on a container, shipped over to to the US. That middle mile piece, then, like, what is the biggest improvement that you saw from Wayfair in taking ownership of the middle mile versus using other third party trucking companies? Look, I, these are also, you know, give them a personal view on, on on these things. I mean, I think on you know operations, it's kind of the crown jewels of e-commerce and and, and the supply chain, the crown jewels of e-commerce, and in my in, in my opinion, and therefore, you know, I would have an approach of reducing dependency on third parties. Of course, you need third parties, but reduce the dependency on those third parties own your intellectual property, own and control the destiny of that customer experience, right? And I, and I often use the use the term, you never see anybody washing a rental car, right? You see people washing their own cars, right? So you own it, right? And you own and build that customer experience in. So having a last mile delivery for something like a furniture and really controlling your own destiny in that is something I believe personally brings a huge amount of value um, to the entire process, the middle mile and the and the last mile product. So that, that's something where I think, you know, as you scale the platform, as you scale the supply chain, um, being thoughtful and prioritizing where you want to control your destiny, the data that you need, the IP that you want to control and bring that in-house to ensure that you drive a brilliant customer experience is a personal view of mine that I would want to continue to drive in, in future supply chains. Is the cost difference materially different 
when you own the middle mile versus use a third party? I mean, I think that's going to be a function of volume, right? And 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 how you, and and how much volume you put that put through you, and, and how you build the capacity and, and etc. And and again, going back to that sales and operations planning process, right? You want to make sure that you you provide enough capacity, never too short, but never too much, because there's waste in there. So so having a really robust and accurate and driving continued accuracy in that process, and then building, as I mentioned earlier in the in the discussion, building the right amount of throughput, and that's throughput in this example, is the throughput of the fulfillment center, but it's all things throughput. It's throughput of the middle mile. It's throughput of the last mile. So it's all connections of how you move product from A to B and establishing the right capacity in that. So the commercial element of it is going to be a function of, of volume. But if you look back to the Amazon days, we are at a certain point in time, and one of the one of the great things about Apple, one of the great things about Amazon, and one of the great things and consistent things about Wayfair, these companies are thinking long term, right? They're making decisions for the long term. And if you look at the, the Amazon example, who would have imagined Prime Air back in 2005? Who would have imagined, in fact, we, we started the very first early deliveries of Amazon Logistics back in the UK I think around 2012 or 2013. And at that point in time, the economics of two or three parcels were, of course, ridiculous. But the company had an incredibly brilliant long-term vision on what they wanted to look like. That was derived from understanding the capacity that would be required for those packages at scale in 2015, 2020, 2025. 2030 and would you want to rely on third parties for all that capacity are those third parties investing in the seasonal in the capacity and the capital needed for the seasonal peaks that the scaling and growth would require the answer is typically no therefore when you take that long-term strategic view you will position the capacity that come back to the prioritization point i met that said, okay, there was a decision made, I actually don't recall, probably in the late 2008, 2009 turn to invest in developing an Amazon Logistics, which has turned out to be enormously successful and strategically brilliant move at that time. So that's how I would answer the question, right? So almost the middle mile or the final mile economics in the very short term, they are what they are. If you're scaling a company to $100 billion, $150 billion, $200 billion, for example, in home products, I'll not mention Wayfair, but I'll just throw that out there, then you want to understand what does capacity look like in every process step from supplier to customer and the returns process in that journey, and then prioritize and choose where you're going to start investing now to ensure that you have a brilliant customer experience and what's going to be competitive in 5, 10, 15 years from now. So really, one of the, one of the learnings, and I've kind of morphed into this, but I want, to, I want to capture it before we close, is companies that are investing in technology, companies that are understanding technology and the consequences of that technology on customers and truly taking a long-term view, of course, also managing the daily and hourly tactical stuff, are best positioned for, for success, in my opinion. And, and not companies, or less so companies, that are focused purely on you know, the financials of this quarter, the financials of next quarter. Really make that investment for the long term. Well, and, and like you said, it comes back to actually providing the best customer experience. Totally, totally. And what's, what's going to be competitive in five years' time, right? Because... Another thing I think that e-commerce has, has, has brought around, that customers are loyal until somebody does it better. And there's always a disruptor out there, right? So companies need to be nimble. Companies need to be continuously innovative. And, and, and in fact, the pandemic for the supply chain forced an incredible innovation. How do you onboard 10,000 people remotely, right, to support the demand? Well, we invented ways, right? And to do that, and we're extraordinarily successful in that process, right? So always keep that agility, always be nimble, always innovate, always simplify, 
always focus on your customers, focus on your employees and focus on safety and, and keep these principles at the core. Well, and it seems like Naraj and, and Steve do have that customer obsession at the core of Wayfair and all these, you know, WDN, the last mile, which which seems to be somewhat similar to Jeff Bezos 20 years ago and, and Wilkie and, and, and FBA. And how do you compare the strategies and leadership of say, Wayfair in its early days, you know, the last few years and, and Amazon back then? Well, look, I mean, I think what, what I'm going to tell you is, is that I admire both companies incredibly well for the focus and the energy and uh, the relentless obsession that they've got in each of the markets that they are serving. And like your question on bricks and mortar, um, there's room for choice in this supply chain and for these customers. So I admire the passion and focus that each of the companies, in fact, all of the companies, like including Apple, has brought the innovation that they've brought uh, to it. And, um, you know, that's why customers keep coming back. And, and, and unless you keep that focus on the customers and employees and keep that innovation, the customers won't come back. So in the, in the end, right, it's a mechanism for, of survival, <laughs> Right, because if the customers don't come back, there's no operation. So I, I would, I would answer, I would answer to say that I admire both approaches, and um, and you know there's room for both in this world, and I'm glad there's choice and customers and choice because that that's what keeps us hungry, that's what keeps us innovating, and that's what's keeping the supply chain running right now. And like you said, it's this the customer obsession and the focus on the customer experience does lend itself to a more fully vert- vertically integrated model where you own each part of the steps that can scale and keep providing that great experience. That is, that, that's the moat That's the moat in the long run, it seems. I think that's right. I, I, I do think that's right. And I think, you know, there, there'll always be a bit of an oversimplification, but you've got platform companies, you've got product companies, and you've got customer experience companies and Companies are brilliant at each of these. And, you know, if you can do more than one of them, if you can have a platform that sells brilliant products and a brilliant customer experience, well, it's the old flywheel. Customers are going to, going to come back. That's why I would go back to your point on the vertical integration. I would start to really prioritize, you know, which parts of these are going to scale to $100 billion and which parts aren't. aren't. So, therefore, where do we start prioritizing investing now to ensure that that customer experience not only continues, but improves an ever competitive environment? It's only going to get more competitive as you know the world continues to innovate on platforms, products, and services. So I think it's an incredibly optimistic and fantastic time to be part of the supply chain. And I think the future's enormously bright for the supply chain moving forward and uh, of course it's going to be tough and of course it's going to be hard and uh, uh, but I very much look forward to it. Last question Alan, I mean where would you place Wayfair in those different buckets that you had like platform, customer experience, product, how would you, how do you place Wayfair? Well it's clearly a platform company, it's a technology platform company and offers fantastic home products to customers all around the world so it's a company that is A, a platform, B, has great products on it with, through the suppliers, and C, is driving a great customer experience. So, you know, Wayfair's ticking all those boxes. 